Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The Wire was a great training ground for people. You know, we were able to really mold a crew that came ready every day. And I think that made a big difference. And we had a culture where we didn't, there wasn't a lot of indulgence of expenditures that didn't show up on the screen. And that came from the producers, but also to the actors and everyone else working on the show. If you were a chef and you're kind of creating a dish for the first time and nobody really knows what this dish is yet, there's something really special about having something, just being creative without a judgment yet. But I think what made Insecure feel that way, I think, was still having that feeling of being the most creative you feel you can be, was also understanding that as Black people making this kind of show with what it was kind of trying to do in this very specific way, that it's not supposed to succeed, makes it even more that way. Honestly, I'm surprised we've operated this way as long as we have. Call me the wandering Jew, I got one suitcase packed. And I've, I've felt that way for a decade now. And it's partly a function of not having audience, at least not having audience at the time of broadcast. At any moment, I expect this dynamic, this sinecure that we have at HBO to be vulnerable. Welcome back to Origins, HBO present, past, and future. A presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. I'm Jim Miller, and this is episode three, On Location. After hearing from HBO executives Casey Bloys, Carolyn Strauss, and Chris Albrecht in episode one, and Amy Gravitt, Francesca Orsi, and Nina Rosenstein in episode two, we're going to change our POV now and take a look at HBO from the eyes and mind of executive producers David Simon, the father of The Wire, Treme, and several other HBO classics, his producing partner Nina Noble, and Prentice Penny, who served as the showrunner on HBO's Issa Rae hit Insecure. David Simon is one of the most important and prolific writers in HBO history. After graduating from the University of Maryland, Simon worked in journalism, displaying a unique voice and an unrelenting work ethic as a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. In 1991, he published his first book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, to hugely enthusiastic reviews, and went on to work with Baltimore legend Barry Levinson on the hit NBC adaptation of that show. Simon began his HBO relationship in 2000 with The Corner, before creating and serving as head writer and showrunner of The Wire, a dazzling drama that is commonly listed as one of the top 10 dramas ever. The show ran on HBO from 2002 through 2008. Simon was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2010 and has stayed at HBO for numerous other projects, including Treme, Show Me a Hero, Generation Kill, 
the adaptation of Philip Roth's Plot Against America, and The Deuce. One of my favorite David Simon and HBO stories revolves around HBO's decision to cancel The Wire after only three seasons. Chris Albrecht was running programming at the time, and it was his then-deputy Carolyn Strauss who had the job of informing Simon that HBO was going to end the show. Strauss arranged for a meeting between Simon and Albrecht, and it would last for more than an hour and a half. I don't think I understood on the day how canceled we were. Carolyn wanted to give me my chance to argue. She knew on some level I needed to vent even if it wasn't going to go well. But I thought I went in with like doubts and probable cancellation, but that, that it was an open-ended meeting. So I think I may have been a little more optimistic than the moment deserved. Yeah, he listened. From his point of view, we were emerging from season three with the best reviews we'd had. The Barksdale season had seemingly concluded. There was an optimal ending there if he wanted it, or a plausible ending anyway. And he said, look, you know, we'll stay in business with you. We'll give you the money for something else. What's the next thing you want to do? Because I had to do it two years in a row. I had to beg for renewal. But um, I would say he just listened to the content. And to his credit, Ed Burns had given us, Ed Burns wanted to write a novel about his time teaching. And the stuff of season four of the school kids, he basically volunteered that and said, well, let him try this on for size and see if they bite. Because we were going to do the education thing anyway, but he now started feeding me a bunch of stuff to go in the room with. So I started talking about the four kids. And um, the meeting went long. You know, at some point, I looked over and Carolyn was like smiling at me like, I can't believe we're still in. It's been 25 minutes, you know. But that's what happened. And, and, uh, and then, of course, uh, after season four, he wanted to cancel it again because he needed the money for production. He was always pressed for money for the production pie. In 1998, HBO aired its first big-scale miniseries, From the Earth to the Moon. It was originally budgeted at roughly $40 million, but the network followed Tom Hanks' passion and wound up spending more than $60 million. Band of Brothers, The Pacific, The Sopranos, and many other HBO projects would be beyond costly as well. But David Simon's HBO shows have proceeded down a different financial path, in large part due to the acumen of his right hand, executive producer Nina Noble. Saunter down the halls of HBO, talk with their production experts, and you're bound to hear the word trust a lot. Trust is a vital ingredient for any network, but particularly so at HBO, where creators and producers are made to feel largely empowered to bring their visions to the screen without being micromanaged. While there is obvious financial supervision, the network wants to be in business with partners who are financially responsible and not spending their days desperately trying to exact more funds. Nina Noble doesn't play such games. She has been working at HBO alongside David Simon for more than 20 years and is part of an MVP triumphant of female powerhouse executive producers at the network, which includes Eileen Landris of Sopranos fame and Bernadette Caulfield, who operated as field marshal on Game of Thrones. Think of all three women as CEOs of these shows not in the writer's room, but often everywhere else. Noble is known for being a woman of her word and a complex problem solver. You can say she's in the solutions business, and that makes television life infinitely more agreeable for David Simon. I think for us personally, it's sort of a sense of honor that you do what you say you're going to do. But I always felt like it made it an easier decision to pick up the show when it wasn't, you know, oh my gosh, look how much this thing costs. Is it really worth it? That was never part of the conversation with our shows. But I think we expect a lot of people, honestly, people could go work somewhere else and make the same or more money. Now they work with us because that's what they choose to do and they know what we stand for. But 
people appreciated a way of working where their opinions were valued or at least heard, where everybody sort of had some input, but you were expected to come prepared. You had to come with a good argument. The Wire was a great training ground for people. We were able to really mold a crew that really came ready every day. And I think that made a big difference. And we had a culture where we didn't, there wasn't a lot of indulgence of expenditures that didn't show up on the screen. And that came from the producers, but also to the actors and everyone else working on the show. I agree. I think we were stealing one from television in terms of what the content was. So you'd often get people on the ground in Baltimore or in Yonkers or, or wherever. And you'd say, look, it's a miracle they're doing this piece for television, you know, it's a, uh, on federal housing or on the failure of the drug war or whatever. And so you could often, I mean, there were those moments where we went over our actor options. We had to get everyone back at the same salary. And uh, it was really kind of a remarkable moment that everybody came back without renegotiating their contract. I had to say to Chris Albrecht at one point, I'll get them all back. And there was almost a sense of mission that like, okay, you know, we're not here on a television production. Though, in fact, we were. But, you know, on some level, I think the content seeped out into the culture of the production. There was an interior discipline. When it happened, I'm not sure I understood it to the extent as being as extraordinary as it was. You know, like Nina came to the show with more experience in the industry than me. I only worked on Homicide. And there's a lot of camaraderie in that show. And there was a lot of good stuff that happened. And I, I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But there were all kinds of internecine fights involving the cast of that show and the young directors. And it all went over my head, but the corner being my second outing, everybody seemed to get along. And then the wire right after it, particularly threadbare compared to say the Sopranos or, or later Deadwood. And I just felt like it was all I knew. It's like I hadn't had a chance to wander around the industry and accept certain things as givens. Like, you know, okay, they give you 45, you end up spending 65. It's no big deal as long as you have ratings. A, I never had ratings. And B, you know, I only worked under Nina and Jim Finnerty. That was it. So, like, I was never part of a culture that the money didn't go on the screen, which, thank God, because I never got the ratings. You know, ratings can justify anything. Your work at HBO spans several different eras. Did those changes affect the way you operate? This is going to sound a little bit self-centered or self-centric, but I feel like at this point, we acquire new people in the pipeline who are in charge of our shows. You know, we've gone through several iterations of supervision. And because we have the record we have at this point, I feel like people almost, it's as much a shakedown for them as it is for us. If the shakedown cruise goes both ways. We, sometimes we acquire people who are more hands-on with other productions. You know, we want people looking at the scripts and we want people looking at the cuts. And we, you know, it, you can get too much inside a story. You need outside eyes and outside ears. You know, it's not like we're fighting off notes in any way. But there are shows that require a lot more hands-on, I think, than we do. So oftentimes we'll get new supervision and they'll be a little bit more indelicate with the notes or with the idea of like, what if we do this? Often there's a vulnerability to that. You know, saying we have a problem here is diagnostic and it's really sort of the best part of a network note. It's like, we had a problem getting this, or this is too much, or that's a good note. Fix it this way is prescriptive. And they're better off leaving that to producers who have been living with the project and understand what's in the can, what they've shot, what the actors can and can't do, what the story 
especially if it's a true story, what we can do, what we can't do. So I feel like we've gone through several generations of we have new supervision. By the time they get to the end of the project with this, it's like, oh, you know, I get you. And like we learn everybody. And the people who've stayed with us, it's almost like we finish each other's sentences. I was just going to add from my perspective, because I deal with a whole bunch of other executives besides the creative ones. And it's true. What David says, we sort of became the training ground for new executives because we had proven ourselves in terms of being creatively and financially responsible. We always got the new guys. And after a while, that gets exhausting for us, having to break in the new people all the time. And finally, when we did Plot Against America and The Deuce Season 3, we did both shows simultaneously. And at that point, I said, I have to have the same set of people on both shows, not the creative execs, but everybody else, legal, business affairs, publicity, you know, all of that production. I can't have two sets of people to talk to, you know, and we were able to get that approved and that helped us so much. I enjoyed hearing from probably a half a dozen people that during their interview process to be a creative exec, they were asked, can you imagine giving notes to David Simon? To be fair, it's not as if I get on the phone and I try to blister people in any way. One of the things that's unique about our productions is even with the long-term series like The Deuce or Wire, there's a lot of talk in the writer's room about why we're doing the show and where we're going and how we see it ending. The Deuce especially. I mean, The Deuce was charted out three seasons before we started writing the pilot. So, like, we've already been in a room where we've argued about why we're bringing this character on and what this character is going to do seasons into the future. And the poor exec is getting three scripts, four scripts, and trying to thread it forward. And it's making the process a little bit more vulnerable than it is with a show that's a little bit more like, hey, we're setting up a universe and we're going to write it and we'll see where it goes, which is a lot of television. You know, for example, I remember Miranda Heller gave me notes to take out the initial robbery involving Omar, that the character seemed unconnected to either the police side of things or the Barksdales, which at that point he was. But we knew Omar going forward. So I was like, no, he's going to connect. In season five, there'll be a scene where he meets with the detectives and he starts to give them information and he's going to weave in, please let him stand in episode three. And that moment played itself out in many, many different productions where it's like, no, 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 at the end, this character is going to look back on this moment and it's going to be key. That's, it's sort of the difference between writing a series of short stories and reading them as short stories and writing a novel. And um, the executives are literally at a disadvantage with the scripts they have in front of them, trying to evaluate them as singular scripts. David, with so much change going on in the business of television, do you feel like you can continue to write and produce shows in the future like you have up to now? You know, I used to say to various execs at HBO, listen, you know, if, if you have to tell me that you guys sat up one day and noticed that we weren't pulling weight that you needed, you know, and we shook hands and said goodbye, I'd still, you know, if I saw you a year later, I'd cross the street and give you a hug. I mean, we, we, it was a great run. If it comes to the point where either the projects themselves are uninteresting to me, if that's the material that we're being asked to do, that, that would end us. Or if we fail to execute, if we come through a project and we look at what we shot and say to ourselves, we've done better, you know, everybody found The Wire and that's great. The Wire helped establish us and it's wonderful and I'm happy that we did it and no disrespect to The Wire at all. But secretly, I feel like our projects have been better executed as we've gone along. I feel like Show Me a Hero, Generation Kill, these things actually had themes that were 
ornate and intricate and they were harder to film and harder to capture and they didn't rely on some of the same tropes that we know work in television. Treme to me is um, this delicate, beautiful piece that, you know, it's just a trombone in a guy's hand, not a gun, which is what makes it vulnerable. So like to me, the, the pieces keep getting more interesting and better. I feel like we're maturing. And if that collapses, that's more on us than on the network. The other part is if the network just decides, you know what, we need impact, we need numbers. You know, I mean, that's what happened to the feature industry. Dragons. Yeah, we need dragons. Then we're doomed that way. And then I think I should throw it to Nita because she's got her own dynamic with HBO and she's got her own vibe. Well, just from my perspective, oddly, our other shows are becoming more like us. You know, in the old days, we were the outliers for always integrating what are popular concepts now, diversity and inclusion and equity into our productions. It was just sort of part of our workflow. And so now, just recently is the first time that people are actually starting to look at all the stuff we've done in that area and wanting to become more like that, just in terms of staffing, in terms of how people are treated. And so I'm tremendously proud of our history in that area. I'm not sure I would do a good job working anywhere. (laughs) We took the money we had and we executed it as we did, but it's not like we ever brought it in an audience. So I'm not sure I would be working anywhere with that track record. I mean, I think in some respects, the appointment television that premium cable offered as opposed to the Nielsen's. That was a window that we were able to crawl through. When we return, we'll go inside HBO's acclaimed cultural juggernaut, Insecure, with its showrunner, Prentice Penny. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Watch the final season documentary of HBO's Insecure, titled The End, and you'll meet many of the important figures who helped turn Insecure into such an unmistakable sensation across 44 episodes over five seasons. And you'll doubtless come to realize one of the key success factors for the show, the extraordinary relationship 
between the show's star, Issa Rae, and its showrunner, Prentice Penny. Penny, raised in Los Angeles, attended USC's screenwriting program and put his time in as a substitute teacher before getting the opportunity to write for the show Girlfriends. He wrote a couple episodes of Scrubs, served as a co-executive producer on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and jumped into reality television and in front of the camera with True TV's Upscale with Prentice Penny. I've worked on shows that were first-year shows, and I think anytime you're on a first-year show, you sort of feel like we're in the trenches together doing something from the beginning, right? So there's something really special. Like when I worked on Happy Endings in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you feel like nobody knows what this is yet because it hasn't come out. Like when you're a kid and you're kind of playing with your own toys in a corner and nobody knows like kind of what you're doing or if you were a chef and you're kind of creating a dish for the first time and nobody really knows what this dish is yet. There's something really special about having something, just being creative without a judgment yet. But I think what made Insecure feel that way, I think was still having that feeling of being the most creative you feel you can be was also understanding that as Black people making this kind of show with what it was kind of trying to do in this very specific way that it's not supposed to succeed makes it even more that way. So you sort of feel like you're not only protective of your show, but you're protective of the culture. You're wanting to be super authentic in every way possible. So you sort of feel like it's not an us versus them, but that's what it felt like. It's like, this has to be right. And we were all coming together in service of that. It wasn't like, I have an ego or that's getting in the way of this, or I'm a huge star and this is that vehicle. And it, it was like, we're all kind of have success in our own way and then having, being new in so many ways. And I think that's what really became the family. So we were all rooted in one goal, which was to help and really make it succeed. Was there an inflection point where you realized this show was growing beyond whatever goals you and Issa originally had for it? Yeah, that was such an interesting thing because obviously we had finished the show with about three or four months before the show aired. So there was still this weird window of like a trailer dropping, but it wasn't like Issa was a huge star, right? It's just like this little show on HBO. But like, I remember around episode five when Issa has sex with Daniel and cheats on Lawrence, watching Twitter explode, watching people's comments about the show. And then people just being so like, oh my God. And it was so funny because the finale aired the day before we started season two in the writer's room. So we were going into season two writer's room kind of like, this is wild, like, and never writing from that perspective, but it felt super participatory as a show, as a thing. And that's when I recognized, oh, this is like click with people in a way that's specific, that's sort of normalizing everyday Black life without trauma behind it, sort of seeing a dark-skinned Black woman be a lead. Um, and being clumsy and awkward as opposed to being super put together. You were just seeing things that I felt that you hadn't really seen yet in television. And so that's when we knew it was like, okay, this is a thing. And then to watch that happen, watch the repeats and people still commenting and commenting at me and being mad at Issa and, you know, mad at me. And and then I could participate with them. And I wasn't sure how that was going to go at first, but then people loved when you respond to them in that way or you express an opinion. That's what I knew. Okay, this is doing some things. The show is not entirely autobiographical, but it's obviously fueled a lot by who Issa is and what she's gone through. And so coming in as the showrunner, you needed to balance the nonfiction part of Issa's life and the fictional part of Issa's life. That could have gone sideways, right? 
Could you talk about how HBO communicated with you about carrying that off? Yeah, I mean, they never had to come in and say any of that. I think Issa and I sorted out our relationship without HBO needing to say, hey, this or hey, that. They just sort of let us figure out our relationship. And I think the way I always viewed the show at the end of the day was I've been brought in to help support your vision that they've already bought, right? So in my version, in my mind, I'm here to give all the things I've learned. And I said, I always feel like at the most, this show is 49% me, but it's always going to be, you're the deciding vote on everything. So if, if we're in the edit, not like one version, like another version, we're doing your version. I could say, hey, here's why I think this, or when we were breaking stories, here's the thing. But if she didn't want to do it, I was never here to like force my thing on her. I was always here to support, okay, well, if we're going to do it that way, then maybe here are a couple ways that we could do that, right? And so that was always the approach because I didn't birth this thing with her. I was sort of like a stepfather where I was like, but I'm the only father the show knows in its physical form. Obviously, Larry and her created the show as a script, but in terms of making the pilot and all the other episodes was sort of being there for that. So I think he said at the end of the day, we just had such a healthy amount of respect for what the other was bringing to the table. Those things never got in the way of anything creative in any kind of way. When our conversation with Prentice Penny continues, we'll talk about Insecure's relationship with HBO and hear what conversations between the two entities are really like. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast at alma we know the connection between you and your therapist matters but if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming that's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing, so you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. 
Prentice, race was an essential ingredient in the show and its success. And you have Amy Gravitt, a white woman in charge of comedy at the network. What was that like? It was honestly great. I mean, really, you know, I come from the network world where the notes are coming from like eight different people, the studio and the network, and you don't really know whose note is whom, and these notes can fight each other, and there's power plays in the notes, and, and sometimes the notes aren't super clear. And somebody like Andy Graver, who's brilliant, and Casey at the time before he was promoted, was the notes always were rooted in real character or real story and trying to make the thing better without an agenda behind why they're making it better. And again, in the network world, it would be like, do this note or else, right? And in HBO, things became conversations. It became like, sometimes when you're writing, you think it's clear, but sometimes Amy or Casey might go, well, I'm not quite sure of this. And then you talk it out. Well, this is what we're trying to do. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, maybe we can set it up that way. And they really shaped what I was looking for when I left HBO in a studio going forward, because it became conversations. It became like, well, let's figure it out together. It became like partnerships. And so most of the stuff that we had to figure out was all season one stuff, like any new show, right? You're trying to figure out the tone and the pace and certain things like that. And, and the one big note that they gave that I think really helped the show was the first season was kind of going to end with Issa and Daniel having sex and we were going to get into the breakup later. And Amy Gravitt, to her credit, is super smart, was like, no, move that up to the middle. And we were like, well, we don't have any more story. And she was like, well, you'll find story. She was right. And like Larry Wilmore said the same thing, like really put yourself in the corner and get out of it. And that was just so helpful. And that's what we did for all the rest of the seasons was let's find ourselves in a corner halfway through and then how do we get out of that? But they were always super helpful and always super. And I'm not just saying that because I was there, like I'm not there anymore. They just really set a tone for how to be partnerships with creatives. How did Insecure change you? I think it changed me as a creator profoundly. I started on Girlfriends, which was primarily an African-American show, but certainly feeling like we were marginalized at UPMC that you're not taken seriously by our peers. And I think after having gone to like network shows where I was the only person of color in the room, you sort of get used to like accepting things as they are, right? And going to do Insecure with Issa and Melina with that energy of a young energy wanting to come in and take over as I did too, but you're also feeling like you're on the island all the time. That off of that experience was just like, no, we're not asking for permission anymore. We're just going to do the thing and speak up for what we want to do, how we want to build our crews, right? Saying that we're not going to, like 50% has to be people of color and women and saying we're doing this or we're not doing this, right? And I just think it made me be much more vocal about the types of things that I would want going forward as a producer, like any other person, right? Like any other white creative gets to say, like, I want to do this, I want to do that. But sometimes when you're the only one, you don't feel empowered to do that because you have to justify or explain why. And it just gets kind of tiring. So it definitely made me much more assertive in terms of what I expect and what I want to do going forward. And I think as a writer, I would say Insecure reminded me why I wanted to write in the first place was when I read that script, it just felt super fun. And it reminded me when you're in the network world or just the business a long time, you can kind of get hammered or drilled. This is the way we do things, right? Or like, don't do it like this or do do it like this. We're kind of getting this copycat formula and it really just reminded me when you're a kid and you're like coloring a picture and you might color the cactus pink or you might color the sun purple and nobody tells a five-year-old don't make the sun purple you just let them create and I was like that's what this experience reminded me of like just create remember to have fun that's why we're doing it as opposed to being afraid to fail or not thinking about the business part 
none of why I went to go make it secure. It didn't make sense for me financially to go do it secure. It wasn't my material. I was losing money, but it was something in the tuning fork of it felt like the right thing to do creatively. So from that place, it has made me a better writer. It just freed me from the anxiety or the insecurity or the fear of what the business can kind of put into you. Next on Origins HBO, episode four, we'll go one-on-one with the unsinkable Sheila Nevins. Thank you for listening to Origins, a presentation of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. This podcast is executive produced by myself and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of C13. It's produced and edited by my brother-in-arms, Chris Basil, who always delivers. Many thanks extend to Terrence Malangone, who provides much appreciated production assistance in the trenches, and our terrific Cadence 13 gang. Production coordination by Kelly Rafferty, marketing, PR, and graphic design from Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Hilary Schoff, and Kurt Courtney. Cadence 13 is an odyssey company. We'll see you next episode. calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.